Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Crit 101. As always, I'm Dr. J, your friendly neighborhood intensivist. Today, I want to talk about something a little different. I want to talk about codes in the hospital and how we handle them. It's really important, as you guys all know, that regardless if you are an intensivist, a resident fellow, nurse, nurse practitioner, whoever you are in the hospital, everyone does play a role when it comes to coding a patient. It's important to know how codes are run and how we can best optimize coding our patient for the best outcomes. I'll tell you, as an intensivist, I'm comfortable with running codes. I We do it all the time. You know, it's part of our work at the hospital. But there are some codes that you just don't forget. I'll never forget my very first code that I ran on my own. I was a second year resident and it was one of my first overnight shifts in the ICU where we were solely responsible for a 20 some bed unit. And I don't remember all the details of that patient, just that he had been admitted for some sort of respiratory failure. He had been extubated earlier that day, and the nurses called me early in the morning, 2 or 3 a.m., saying that his oxygen saturation wasn't recovering, and next thing you know, he lost a pulse. I coded him. I did everything that ACLS protocol said to do, and about 20 minutes had gone by, and there still was no return of circulation. And I was lucky that night. I had a senior who was on internal medicine service who very, uh, thank God that he was available and he was able to help me out. And he he really was a great source of uh, help that night. But we kind of put our heads together. And after that 20 minutes, we had to call it. And I, I, I've never forgotten having to call that patient's father and having to tell him on the phone that, you know, we we did everything we could, but we couldn't save your son. So you don't forget your first code. You don't forget your bloodiest code. I had a lady who was GI bleeding due to uh, esophageal varices, and this is when I was a fellow. And I had a wonderful surgical resident with me who was able to put a Blakemore tube down. But I kid you not, you ask any of the nurses who were working that night with me or anyone who was in that room with me that night, and the room was filled with at least an inch of blood just from all the vomiting. We coded her, I don't even know how many times that night, at least five or six times. And of course, we didn't get her back. And then, of course, all the codes that we had to deal with during COVID at the height of the pandemic, you know, one after another, it just wouldn't stop. And these were young patients, otherwise healthy patients, people who you wouldn't normally otherwise see um, be admitted with such sick illnesses and do so poorly. We had to harden ourselves, of course, during that time, just because so many people were coding And we had to pick ourselves up and move on to the next patient. And I will say, since the height of the pandemic, things have kind of gotten back to normal when it comes to the number of people who code and the frequency of those codes. But I'll tell you, I had a guy earlier today in the unit, a 29-year-old who was admitted with ARDS. And he'd had his good days, you know, and his bad days. And 
lately there have been more good days than bad days and we were all hopeful that he was going to make it. At the very worst case scenario, maybe he would have needed a trach and spent some time at a long-term care facility. But I don't think anyone ever really thought that he was going to code. I had talked to his parents last week and, you know, I told them, you know, we're, we're in that situation where we take two or three steps forward and maybe half a step back. So some progress, but we still have to be vigilant. I had talked to his wife, told him the same thing. Everything had been going fine this morning until he was turned as per, you know, usual nursing care and he dropped his sats. Now, he had done this last week also when he was being turned in the process of proning him. And we just bagged him, suctioned him, got his sats back up. Everything was fine. As you know, these people who are vented and are in ARDS, which this guy was, they're so, so sick that any little change in their hemodynamics or any small insult that for anyone else would have been no big deal. And then it affects them hundredfold. So when we had to bag him last week, it probably took us at least a good 45 minutes before we got his sat back up. Well, today, when he dropped his sat after being turned, he didn't just drop his sat, he also dropped his blood pressure. We started the usual, we bagged him, gave him some push dose epi, he still had a pulse, and his sat still weren't coming up. Next thing you know, We don't have a pulse. So I tell my nurses, get on the chest. Let's start compressions. I had someone listen to his lungs and we didn't hear any breath sounds on the right side. And mind you, this guy was a little bit of a bigger gentleman. He had a BMI in the 50s. But since we didn't hear any clear breath sounds on the right side, we went ahead and needle decompressed. And we did hear a rush of air, so we got the surgery team to come in and put a chest tube in. Now, mind you, while all this is happening, CPR is going on, epi has been given, bicarb has been given, and every time we don't have a pulse, his SATs did start to recover once the surgical team was able to place a chest tube in, but they weren't maintaining. I ran the code for about 35 minutes before we all agreed that there was nothing more that we could do. So I went outside, talked to his wife, who of course was bawling, talked to his father, and had to tell them that her 29-year-old husband, who she'd only been married to for just a couple months, and his 29-year-old son was gone. I'm not telling you guys this to engender any sympathy or anything like that. It's part of our job. It's what we do. It's difficult. And it's not easy on us as providers, mentally, emotionally, but this is why I think it's so important that you know how to code someone, how to do all, and how to do all aspects of that code. Because while oftentimes you don't get a good outcome from a code, let's just be real, but there are those instances where you do get someone back, and that is all because you know how to run a code You know all aspects of what's going on in the code and the things that need to be done to best optimize your patient's outcome. So that's what I want to go over today. So let me pose a scenario, and I think this is the easiest way to kind of talk about it. You're in the hospital, say you're on call, 
and say a rapid response gets called for whatever the reason may be. You're on your way to responding to it when next thing you know, they change it from a rapid response to a code blue. And when you get there, we'll make this a floor patient. I think that'll be even easier to discuss. When you get there, you see that the nurses are in the room. No one's really sure what to do. And you're the first provider present. And the reason why they change it to the code blue is because one of the nurses felt that they didn't get a pulse. So the first thing you are going to do, and, and oftentimes, let, let me let me go back a second. Oftentimes you'll get there and there'll already be a crowd around the door. And oftentimes when you get there, there's already going to be people screaming, yelling, saying, do this, don't do that. The first thing you need to do is to establish who is in charge. And sometimes that means simply just yelling out who is running this code. If another provider, whether it's a physician, nurse practitioner, is there and has said, I am running this code, then that's who is in charge. If no one is saying that, which is quite common, then you speak up and you say, my name is so-and-so, I am a physician, or I am a nurse practitioner, whatever your role is, and I'm going to be running this code. People need to know who's in charge. Now, once you have made that decision that you are running that code, that is your focus. You do not do the airway. You do not do compressions. You are not leaving your position from running that code because you need to be the one with eyes on everything, seeing what's going on and thinking about what could have caused this and what do I need to do to fix it. So you cannot have your attention taken elsewhere. Once you decide that you are running the code, and by now someone should be on the chest doing CPR, but if they're not, someone needs to get on the chest and just start doing CPR. In the interim, your nurses should have hooked up the patient to the crash cart. So the pads should be on the patient, and ideally a backboard should be under the patient as well. It protects the patient and also provides stability for the people doing compressions. So that's one thing that you are going to watch out for. That is someone on the chest, has someone hooked the patient up to the crash cart, and is there a backboard underneath the patient? While that is happening, the next thing that you need to look out for is who is timing. For those of you who are already familiar with ACLS, you know this. For those of you who are not, timing is key in ACLS protocol because this tells you when to do your pulse checks and when to give meds. And we'll get into that in a minute. So the next thing you need to identify is someone who needs to time. Now, that person who is timing, that is all they should be doing. They should not be passing meds. They should not be trying to get IVs, nothing like that. Again, everyone has a specific role when running a code. And this is the only way that we can best optimize our patient's outcomes. So next you're going to find out, okay, I need you to time or you yell out who's timing. Next, once that person has identified that, okay, I'm timing, someone needs to take care of the airway. Whether it's someone calling anesthesia for you, it's a resident or or nurse practitioners come to the bedside who takes care of there, someone needs to be at the head of the bed ready to intubate. Until that point, respiratory needs to be there and bagging the patient. And then once you have someone available to intubate, they go ahead and take care of the airway. You do not stop compressions. 
there are you know multiple opinions about this some people will say oh you can stop briefly to let them get the tube i really am of the opinion that compressions need to continue while you're doing a pulse check that ideally would be the time to get the tube in because you can give that 5 10 seconds at most for them to slide that tube in but if you have a experienced provider and they can get the tube in while you're compressing that really is ideal So you've identified someone's at the air at the head of the bed. They're going to take care of the airway. All right. So you are running the code. Someone is timing. By this point, the nurses have identified someone's going to be passing meds. Someone you've already identified someone to take care of the airway. You should also ask for someone to get the Doppler because when you do your pulse checks, nine times out of ten, you're not going to get a pulse just by feeling for your carotid or your fem. So it's always good to have the Doppler present. If you are on the floor, chances are you don't have an art line in. It, you're just going to have the blood pressure cuff. So someone needs to have that cycling every 30 seconds, what have you. And then someone needs to be available to get IV access. Now, if you're lucky, you have a patient with good peripherals and enough peripherals to be running whatever drips or pushes of meds that you need. oftentimes that's not the case. So, a lot of times if you're lucky at an institution where you have surgical residents, they'll often come to the code and they can place a quick central line for you. Again, if you're running that code, you should not be placing the line. This is not everywhere though. Some places have phased this out because of the increasing popularity of something called the IO or the intraosseous line. This is actually a really easy uh, line to place. and you basically drill into either the humerus or the tibia tibial plateau specifically and uh you go ahead and drill that IV into the bone and once it flushes back clean then you can go ahead and use that and it works just like a central line but someone needs someone else needs to be placing that while you are running the code so now that you've got kind of all those things handled someone is timing someone is doing your airway someone's getting an iv so he's already, your patient's already been hooked up to the crash cart now you need to kind of focus on okay what's going on ideally at this point you have a minute for someone to be telling you the story you look at the rhythm that's on the monitor and you start going through your what's called your h's and t's and these are the really common reversible causes of why someone arrests. So things like hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion is what they call but really what it means is a very acidotic state, a hypo or hyperkalemic state, hypothermia, someone who's got a tension pneumo, who's in tamponade, toxins is the next T but really that means you're like overdose patient and then thrombosis whether it's a PE or a coronary thrombosis like an acute MI. So you start thinking about those things while someone's doing CPR and, you know, giving meds. I'll tell you it's often kind of knee jerk when you're running a code, you want to be doing something. It's weird and I still find it weird. You're just standing there kind of at the head of the bed while people are doing things around you, but in reality you are doing things you're thinking about why they could have coded you're ordering the labs to look into it you're maybe doing a bedside echo 
to see if they have tamponade or doing a bedside ultrasound to see if they've got lung sliding. So it's not that you're not doing things. So don't feel like you're doing something wrong if all you're doing is standing at the head of the bed. And I'll tell you, oftentimes when you code someone, once things have kind of settled down, it's usually pretty quiet during that two minute period when you're, when someone's doing CPR. I'll give you the example from what happened today. It was a pure respiratory arrest and we knew we'd gone through all of our H's and T's. There was really nothing else to do for those two minutes while someone was doing CPR, except just stand there and wait and pray and hope that, you know, he'd come back to us. It's, it's very awkward and it's okay that it's awkward. That's the whole situation of coding someone is not meant to be a comfortable situation. It is meant to be a little uncomfortable. So I just want you guys to realize that, that it's, it's going to feel weird. So while you're going through your H's and T's, as I kind of alluded to before, you're going to start asking for other things to be ordered, or you're going to look at other things to help figure your cause out of why they code it. So for example, You'll do a bedside ultrasound, look for lung sliding to real attention pneumo. You can do a bedside echo uh, to look for tamponade. Um, you'll get labs, you'll get an ABG uh, to look for any acidosis, electrolyte issues. Um, hypovolemia, you know, a lot of that's going to be from your physical exam. You know, you'll see your, your blood pressure obviously will be low. Toxins, a lot of that's going to be based on your history. And then as far as a PE or MI, you know, you'll get a troponin, you can get a BNP. PE, oftentimes we think about that as a common cause for our patients who have coded. And again, that's going to go based on your judgment and uh, definitely something you guys should keep in the back of your mind. So let's get a little bit into the specifics of how we actually do ACLS when to do CPR, when to give meds, et cetera. So like I said, if we go back to our example patient, someone started CPR, the monitor's hooked up and you're looking at the rhythm. First thing first is that your CPR, whoever's doing it, it needs to be good CPR. And there is such a thing as bad CPR. You need to push hard on the chest You have to go in at least two inches and you have to go fast. You should be doing at least 100 compressions in a minute. And between each compression, you should allow the chest to completely recoil. CPR is meant to be tiring. If you're not tired after doing CPR, you're not doing good CPR. Another thing, there is no shame whatsoever in saying, I'm tired, I cannot continue to do good CPR. At the end of the day, our patient's outcome is what matters. No one should be shaming anyone for saying that they can't do good CPR. If you cannot do good CPR, call out that you need someone to take over and there will be someone standing behind you to step in. To add on to that, when you guys are switching people over, don't waste time. Oh, this person's going to come or repositioning because the more time we waste, it's worse on our patient. So don't be ashamed to say that you can't continue, need someone to take over. And also don't be ashamed to say, can I have the bed lower? Can I have it higher? Or I need a stool. Again, it's all about our patient. If you can't provide good quality CPR, then what's the point? So definitely a couple of things that you guys need to keep in mind. 
while your patient's getting CPR, you'll have your respiratory therapist or whoever's at the head of the bed bagging the patient. Remember, when you bag your patients here, you're not going to, you know, be bagging too fast. You don't want to overventilate. Just basically, you know, one breath every five to six seconds is, is good enough while the compressions are going on. So CPR is going, you're looking at your monitor. Now, why are you looking at your monitor? Because you want to know what kind of rhythm the patient's in because that will determine what you do next. So let's go with, um, and if you guys remember your ACLS algorithms, on the left side of the algorithm, we have V-fib or pulseless VTAC. These are the only rhythms that are shockable. Please do not shock any other rhythm because it will not work. So V-fib or pulseless VTAC, you shock these patients. When you are shocking someone, you do not get off the chest until the machine says that I'm, you know, that everyone needs to clear. While it is charging, you must continue CPR. People oftentimes, once they hear the machine start beeping, they'll get off the chest. You are wasting precious seconds there. Continue doing CPR until the machine says everyone um, that we're going to shock. The other thing you have to remember is that this is not synchronized. The machine must be set to an asynchronous um, setting. If you do it, if you have it on the synchronized setting, not on the defib setting, it's useless. Okay. So when you shock, you can start, usually we start at like around 200 and we just keep working our way up. As soon as the shock is delivered, you get back on the chest. Okay. So CPR in general, every two minutes, and you'll assess the pulse each time after that two minutes and look at the monitor and see if it's shockable, if you have no pulse. Our medicine, our drug of choice, our first drug of choice, and there is some data to suggest that there may be some other preferred drugs of choice, but right now in the ACLS algorithm, the preferred drug of choice is epinephrine. Now, another thing that people forget is they think that the CPR timing and epinephrine timing goes together. It does not. CPR goes for two minutes. Epinephrine goes every three to five minutes. That's really important. So if you're done with your CPR and it's time for a pulse check, that may not mean that you are also ready for epinephrine. Okay. Now, in the part of the algorithm that's for V-fib, pulseless VTAC, you can choose to use amiodarone or lidocaine if uh, epi has not helped. Specifically with amiodarone, your first dose is going to be 300 milligrams, and then your second dose is going to be 150, not the other way around. With lidocaine, when you do your first dose, it's going to be 1 to 1.5 mg per kg, and then your second dose is going to be 0.5 to 0.75 mg per kg. So again, it gets cut in half. That's essentially how your code is going to run for V-Fib Pulses VTAC. Your main uh, thing here is you're going to shock, continue your CPR, give epi when the time dictates, and you can use amio or lidocaine if needed. Now let's go to the other side. If your rhythm is asystole or PEA, which in general is going to be your more common causes of your in-hospital arrest, and this is really where we see a lot of those H's and T's being the underlying cause, you're going to give epi right away and you're getting on the chest. There is no role to shock your patient here. Okay. The basis of what you're doing to get them 
uh, to get them back is going to be CPR and epi. Again, CPR every two minutes, pulse check, epi every three to five. And you're going to think about your reversible causes and uh, how you could possibly treat them. So pretty simple as far as the ACLS protocol goes. Now, as you guys know, for those of you who are already seeing codes and uh, running them, nine times out of 10, we don't get these patients back. And oftentimes if we do neurologically, you know, and they've had enough downtime that they've already developed a severe anoxic encephalopathy and oftentimes, you know, families end up withdrawing down the road. But you do have that patient on the off chance that you may get back. We had a patient I won't forget as a fellow who came in with a massive PE. Um, He was given TPA, but he was coded. He was in his 40s and he was coded appropriately. And we got ROSC and he had full neurologic function and he walked out of the hospital. So it can happen. It's not always this bleak outlook. Now, running a code is important, but so is knowing what to do after the code is over, whether or not your patient has had return of circulation. If your patient's had return of circulation, you know, you're going to make sure you get a blood pressure, EKG, whatever labs you didn't already get, make sure that your airway is secure, you're going to get imaging chest x-ray, if they're stable enough to go down for CAT scans, send them down for that. Look at your access. If they need central lines, art lines, start working on those while the nurses are getting ready to move them to the ICU. But regardless of whether or not you have return of circulation, what is really important to do after a code has been run is to do a debrief. It may sound a little silly, but it's actually very, very helpful. And it's actually been proven to help with outcomes. When you have patients on the floor that have coded, a lot of times floor nurses aren't comfortable with the situation. I mean, to be frank, it's it's not their area of expertise. They don't really know what to do. And it's always good to go over with them that what worked, what didn't work. And it's good to kind of go over with yourself that did you address everything? Were there things that you could have done better as the person running the code to optimize your patient's outcome? Debriefing is very, very important when you're running a code. One thing I always do, and I'm sure other providers do this as well, when I'm running the code and I have racked my brain, I haven't, you know, found any other thing that I can do to help with uh, this patient's outcome, I will ask the question aloud to the rest of the team that's in the room. And I will say, We've gone through X, Y, and Z, and I will give my rationale as to why I think this worked or this didn't work. And I will ask, is there anything else that anyone has any other suggestions, anything else that we should do or can do to help this patient? There is no shame, no harm in asking help from others, especially when someone's life is literally on the line. And the same goes for the debrief. It's important to talk to your nurses because, or anyone else who's in the room helping out with a code, because maybe there was something that they noticed that could have been done better from a leadership perspective, the same way that you would feel that 
hey, maybe we didn't have great communication. I didn't have someone timing the way that they should. This is a really important situation to learn from everyone. So to sum it up, debriefing is very, very important um, in running a code. All right, so bottom line, what I just want to say today is that codes, they happen. They can happen at any time, anywhere, doesn't matter. They can happen in any patient. And it's really important for all of us to be prepared and how to handle these situations. It can be really jarring emotionally and mentally to us, and that's a topic for another time. But the best way to help our patients is to be prepared. I just wanted to share with you guys the little tips that I have and the way how I run codes and a brief review ACLS. I hope that you all got something out of this and it's helpful for you the next time that you have to run a code. And remember, there's always someone there to help you out, especially if it's your very first code that you're running. If you guys have any other questions or tips on how you guys run codes and want to share, uh, you can always email me at pomcrit101 at gmail.com or reach out to me on Instagram, pomcrit101. And I will be back next week with another wild and crazy case. I'll see you guys next time.